Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of thehappymd.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hey, Dyke Drummond here again at the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. We have a friend of the broadcast on again, Dr. Penelope Shu, MD. Penny is one of our coaches here at thehappymd.com. And just so you know, coaching tab at our website, thehappymd.com, you're going to see frequently asked questions, Penny's bio, our discovery session, which is your initial conversation, is always no cost, no obligation, and completely confidential. So if you want to check out Penny, have a conversation with her about your situation, especially if you're in that situation where you say, I'm not sure how much longer I can keep going like this. She's more than happy to share some insights as a certified physician burnout coach. And today, Penny and I are going to talk about something that she's gone into in some depth with a whole bunch of her coaching clients recently. And that's about how does a doctor communicate in situations where the stakes are high, like when you're talking to your family, when you're talking to your boss, right? When you're not in a giving orders situation where somebody's supposed to obey or comply. We're actually going to talk about adapting some contents of a very popular, very powerful book called Crucial Conversations. Tools for talking when the stakes are high, adapting those to doctors, and why they're so important for doctors because they're outside the comfort zone of our normal, if we've got our doctor hat on, the normal way we communicate with our patients and our staff. Welcome, Penny. Thank you. I'm so excited. And so what I find is that there are a couple of boundaries and role boundaries at work or at home where if you keep your doctor hat on and you behave the way you would normally behave as a physician, with a care team, that you're really getting in trouble. Because with your doctor hat on, what we're doing is thinking as fast as possible to find a unifying diagnosis to acquire expertise to give an order which is meant to be obeyed or complied with. And when you're talking to your boss or when you're talking to a colleague, you're talking to your family, you get into a lot of situations where the conversation is important, but you're not a doctor. You can't give orders. And in that case, sometimes we get a little bit lost as how to proceed. These are crucial conversations. So let's talk about tools you might use when you remember to take your doctor hat off at these important times. I have been literally coaching everyone with this because I think it is something that's so ingrained in our medical education to receive orders and give orders, right? And so it's, it's a very binary way of communicating. Either you sit there and you take it and comply, or you're in the other position of giving the orders and expecting people to comply. And that really doesn't work when you are married or, you know, with your kid or even with your boss, because a lot of times our bosses these days are not other physicians and they are not used to being spoken to in this very like directive, blunt, no nonsense, let's get to it. Um, and here's always what urgent, always urgent and always like I'm right because that's our job to be right. Um, and like you said, if you never take that hat off, it's really easy to just kind of constantly think that you are in doctor mode and you are right and this is your plan and nothing anybody else says, not that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't merit you changing your position at all. 
And I think that can be very difficult to navigate when you are in relationship, whether again, whether it's a work relationship or a family relationship, to have it be so unidirectional, generally the other person gets alienated. And I've seen this a lot with husbands and wives that when I'm working with one of the pair, one of the first things that comes up is like how badly they're communicating because they don't understand each other and whatever. And when I dig a little bit deeper, it's usually because that hat isn't coming off. What I've heard over and over again is like, well, then what would I say? There really is like this huge question mark of like, what else is there? And think about it. It's almost like conversational post-traumatic stress syndrome, right? So I'm a family doc, seven years med school residency. And in med school and residency, your waking hours are dominated by your educational process where you're expected to get to the point, give orders, have the right answer, seldom wrong, never in doubt. And that just doesn't necessarily work in a romantic relationship. Or even an employer-employee relationship, because again, generally more and more these days, physicians are employees, we're not the employers. And so when you go talk to your boss and tell them they're wrong (laughs) and that your plan is right and you know what's up, that doesn't often go well either. And I am completely guilty of that one myself. <laughs> and let's talk about uh, being a physician in the middle of the bureaucracy, getting in a conflict with somebody who's on the administrative side of the house gets you labeled. And let's just look at you and look at me. So I'm a big old white guy. It's amazing what I can get away with. And it won't be a permanent stain on my record. They might even look at me being directive or a little bit brusque and think, ah, That guy's got leadership potential. You hear that all the time, right? Whereas there's you. And for those who are listening to audio, Penny is a petite, attractive Asian female. And you would get the B word really fast and the B tattoo on your forehead really fast. In my experience, having worked with lots and lots of different people who've been discriminated against on the basis of all sorts of different things, that doesn't rub off. Once you get that label, you make a mistake of coming at somebody with your doctor ordering hat on and getting that label, if you happen to be somebody other than a big old white guy like me, it can really, really, really affect your trajectory in the organization. Yep. I can 100% attest to that. It has stopped any sort of trajectory that I may have ever had at an organization. And it's pigeonholed me. It has colored you know, every interaction I've had, even after the people that I quote unquote butted heads with have left the organization, right? That stain and that stink just never goes away. It's a long so tail. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why this resonates with me so much because I'm like, gosh, if I knew any of these tools beforehand, maybe my career would look a little bit different. But I can see the impact of not adapting our language. And then I can see the effect of, you know, when I work with clients and now that I know these tools, I use them myself. I can see the effect of using this new language as just being so much more effective and so much less stressful and just a better way to speak (laughs) overall. The thing you have to notice is the change of context. So if I'm with a care team caring for a patient directly, when my subject matter expertise is being called upon to give orders to the team, I can go ahead and be a doctor. But if I step outside the exam room and somebody's asking me something else about the operations of the practice, I'm not a doctor anymore. If I'm with my child, if I'm with my partner, if I'm with my boss, you know, if I'm in the donut shop getting a donut and coffee before or after work, right? I'm not a doctor anymore. So let's go ahead and take a breath and take that doctor hat off and teach us some tips about crucial conversations. All right. 
So again, I think the first one is exactly what you said, is just remembering that we're not a doctor all the time. And that, you know, when I ask clients, like, well, how would you feel if someone said to you, whatever it is that they just said to me, you know, and they'd be like, oh, well, that's just rude. I'm like, exactly. But like, <laughs> and I have like an example in my head of one of the clients that I've been working with who, you know, has been trying to connect to her spouse. They've not been on the same page. They've been having some arguments, whatever. And she's a big walker. She likes to take walks. It helps clear her head and whatever. And it's one of her stress management tools, which is great. And so she <laughs> wanted to spend time with her husband and basically did so by saying, come take a walk with me. It's important that we walk together. It's important that we spend time together. We haven't connected in a while. This is important to me. You know how much I love taking walks. <laughs> and for those of you who are on audio, um, Dyke I... was standing at attention like, you know, an army soldier. And so <laughs> you can imagine that the spouse like initially said no. And then every time he would go, it really didn't make the bond any better. He was pouting. He was like, this is just for you. This is never for me. It's all about you. And she was so frustrated because she was like, I'm trying so hard to connect to him and he doesn't want to connect to me. And What's his problem? (laughs) (laughs) And so I asked her very simply, I was like, well, does your husband like to walk? And she was like, well, no, he's not really an outdoorsy person. I am. I'm like, okay, so then why are you asking him to walk? And she's like, well, because it's something I love. And I'm like, who are you trying to serve here? He's ordering him to walk. (laughs) You will walk with me now. That's right. And I was like, nobody, one, appreciates being ordered to do anything. And then two, if it's not something that you actually enjoy, there's even more resistance. And so I said, what is something that you both enjoy? And it took her a while and she was very resistant. She was like, well, he just needs to do this. Because our relationship is on the line and I'm trying and he's not. We kind of work through the book a little bit. And one of the biggest tips is to not throw in so much emotion. When the stakes are high, to actually make the conversation very simple. Bring it down. Rather than giving orders or saying like, I'm trying to connect to you. Why don't you want to connect to me? But rather just getting to the root of the issue, which was that she missed her husband. She missed their connection and she wanted to connect. And so we actually worked on and role played a couple times her saying those words, honey, I just, I miss our connection. I want to connect to you. I'm going to be taking a walk. I'd love it if you'd come. We don't even have to talk. I just want to hold your hand is essentially what she said. And wouldn't you know, he went on the walk. What I'll say is that there is no way from what you described to me as a starting point to what she eventually said that she could have done that without at least four or five passes through a rehearsal. So let me just say something that is a common piece of any coach that works with doctors. Here we are. We're on a Zoom platform right now recording this. Rehearsing crucial conversations is a very, very important thing to do. And doctors tend to be allergic to this kind of stuff. I don't know what it is about doctors, but we like to go into a room where we've never met the person who's there. We don't know what their problem is and just be like a, an improv comedian and make it up from the start. But I'm telling you, if you have a coach, and you say, this is the conversation I want to have, and you trade off roles, and you practice, 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 and record it, and your coach gives you the recording, you could go into a conversation that you would not have been able to make up in the moment. It would have ended badly, and it can go spectacularly because you've had a chance to practice it four, five, six times in a row and get comfortable with a different way of talking. One of the things that is a big part of what I teach is when you take your doctor hat off, Stop giving orders and start 
asking questions, and ideally those questions start with what or how. And that's just a basic principle. Pretty sure it's in here, although I have not read the book. But what happens is you're then sharing the control of the conversation. What, if you got shit for brains, you wouldn't want to ask that question, although it is functionally a question that starts with what, but you get what I mean, right? Yeah, and I think you, you mentioned a really good point about sharing control, which is another thing that doctors have a difficult time with because so much control is given to us and is expected for us to take on. It is sometimes hard to remember that in these types of conversations, both sides legitimately have reasons to believe what they believe. And it's not like I'm right and you're wrong. And so one of the other basic premises of the book that I really focus on a lot is mutual respect. Because again, our role a lot of times is very patriarchal, right? It's like, I'm going to tell you what to do because I know better. And then to just shift that perspective to be two equal partners and honoring the fact that your husband doesn't like to take walks. Like you have to respect that. You can't just shove your, you know, your belief system, your values onto somebody else. You have to at least have respect for it. You may not agree, but the question isn't who's right or who's wrong. The question becomes, if we're both right, then what? And that's like, I think, a really different way of thinking about the way, you know, a lot of these conversations go. Because again, using that same client as an example, like she really was, my husband doesn't care about me. Our marriage is over. He's checked out. All of these things. And it basically came down to the fact that he just didn't like to take walks. You know what I mean? Like he's not checked out of the marriage. He doesn't want a divorce. He wanted to connect to her too. Fast forward. Now they take bike rides together because he's more into that than walking. And now they do it on a regular basis. So it was just about finding that middle ground, what the book calls mutual purpose, rather than forcing one person's goals or objectives over the other's. What is the mutual purpose? If the mutual purpose really is to connect to one another and save your marriage, what would that look like? Rather than, this was my idea, so we have to do it, right? It became like, our marriage is important. What can we do to honor that? And one of the things that he mentioned was he wanted date night because she's, I think, I can't remember the exact scenario, but he's home, I think, more with the kids than she is. He wanted a break. You know, and so it meant hiring a babysitter. And again, that led to a conversation around finances, but they hired a babysitter. Her mom is helping now sometimes so that they can have date night. So date night and bike rides came out of, you have to take a walk with me (laughs) or our marriage is over. It's a radical change that, again, doesn't take rocket science. It does take practice. It does take working through like the vulnerabilities that come up. And like, that's a lot of the coaching that I also do is sort of, I miss my husband. I have to say that I, you know what I mean? Again, because we're so used to being stoic. That's doctor programming. I see, I don't see it as being stoic. I see it as cloaking anything that anybody could potentially perceive as weakness. Like I have to pee. Don't let him know you have to pee. I have to break rounds to go to the bathroom. Don't let him know that. Then I drum you out of the program. This is all PTSD. This is all trauma from the culture of our residency and medical school education. Just a linear thing from my perspective outside of my practice watching myself years later and from my perspective as a coach. And I think so much of wanting to be in control is about the oppressive sense of responsibility in your job. Right? I have to control everything because I'm going to be held responsible for everything even if I didn't make that decision. Being able to take that doctor hat off at the boundary between work and home and take a big breath come all the way home. 
100%. The beginning tools that I often share with my clients is maintaining that mutual respect and really trying to respect that other person's point of view, not just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. A mutual purpose, get out of the right and wrong. If you're both right, then what? If you're both right, what can you do together? And then like, like you said before, just toning down the emotion. And um, slowing everything down yeah. too. Yeah. You don't have yeah. another patient waiting. You're not a half hour behind, right? You're sitting at home with your husband. <laughs> You're <laughs> not another, on a clock. <laughs> that's another great point because I had another client who was like, oh, I tried it and it was working really well. And then at the end, it kind of fell apart. And so I guess, you know, it doesn't work. And I was like, okay, look, this is the first time you've tried it in like however long you've been married. She's like, yeah, but like, I really wanted it to work. I was like, well, I'm pretty sure you're going to talk to your husband again. I'm pretty sure there's going to be another opportunity for you to practice this. Maybe. I mean, I hope, right? I hope you're going to see him later today and tomorrow. There's many opportunities. The other thing about our mentality of like, I've got to fix it now, because that's another thing that happens with a lot of my clients. They're like, oh, these tools are great. I'm going to do it right now. And I expect it to be done right now. Again, lancing a boil, like I'm going to fix it and it's going to be done. And I kind of have to remind people to slow it down. Like these patterns developed over years are going to take a while to unlearn and learn new patterns. And that there doesn't have to be that urgency. I have to fix my marriage in one conversation. I have to get him to understand in one conversation. It can take time and it probably should. Because we're talking about a huge shift in the way you're communicating that is going to take the other person a while to get used to as well. It's a lot to change. And so I think doing it slowly, having some patience, not feeling like you've got to fix it in one shot is also really important. And again, that's a trained behavior, right? So as a family doc... I'm going to make a decision with a person I've never met before in five minutes and put a bow on the interaction in 10 or 12. And I'm going to do that 25 times a day, 10,000 in a 10-year career. It's a thought flow. It's a communication flow. It's a responsibility flow that if you bring that home with your kids, mm, dad, chill. If you bring that home with your significant other, it's not going to work so well, but you still have to have that boundary where you take the head off on the wind. And again, they do not teach you any of this in residency or medical school. Usually you learn these kind of things in the failure of a relationship or in the recovery from your first or subsequent episodes of burnout, sadly. But, but again, I can't count the number of times where I would talk to a coaching client. They would have a conversation that's coming up or a conversation that they recently had that was very troubling to them. And to be able to rehearse and record and switch roles is incredibly important in something that, again, is against physician culture. I can still remember, hey, Dr. Drummond, we've got a work in. What do you want us to do? Do you want me to go interview and see what's up? I say, no, stick her in a room. I'll just go in and take care of it. It's like, hang on a second. We can slow down and we can let our team help us and we can have conversations that are different than the ones we have on the fly in the office or hospital. I feel like it's been about 60-40 in terms of when I offer, hey, we can role play, we can rehearse, wherein 60% will say no (laughs) and only 40% will say yes. Because I think there is that reluctance to, one, get uncomfortable and stay uncomfortable and not feel that fluent or in control. I don't actually know if you have any tips on how to get people to break through that a little bit better. Because again, like I said, about 40% of people be like, you know what, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. I'd rather trip over my words with you than with my boss, than with my spouse. And then the other percent are like, no, 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 I'm I'm good. I'm good. good." Uh, Thanks for the tools. I got it. (laughs) 
Well, and my thought process is always, what's the worst thing that could happen? And here's my experience. If there's an important conversation, and often the ones that people will bring to me is a conversation with their boss. And it's an important conversation. My experience is, if you don't prepare for the worst, it will happen immediately. It will happen as soon as the conversation begins. But if I ask you, what's the worst thing that could happen? And you tell me, and then we rehearse and rehearse and rehearse, actually give you two or three different passes at what you might say if that worst thing comes out of your boss's mouth, it doesn't happen. So the prepare for the worst, expect the best, actually ensures the worst won't occur. And I've seen that over and over and over again. But yes, doctors are resistant to help again because, hey, I got this. I'm bulletproof. I'm Superman. No, if I was to ask for help, it would be a sign of weakness, all that kind of stuff. I just want to just recall that a whole bunch of coaching is about elite performance. The people who have the most coaches are the folks on the podium at the Olympics. Okay, because they're going for excellence, not because they think it's a sign of weakness. I'm going to use that. (laughs) There's remedial coaching to help somebody who is below average. And then there's performance coaching and it's helping somebody go to an elite status. By definition, anybody who makes it into and through medical school and residency is on the elite podium, I would hope. And yet we all still have growing edges no matter where we are in the performance cycle. And again, you can be a fantastic doctor and on your fourth marriage and your kids hate you because you have been unable to take the doctor hat off along the way. And that's describing a big old white guy like me, a gunner, boomer, performer kind of a person. You can also be a wonderful physician and have a huge heart and want to make a big difference in an organization. And you make a mistake in a single conversation and it destroys your ability to be influential from that point forward. So I think it's important to err on the side of practice. And I really do believe it's one of the special things that we as physicians can offer our physician clients, especially nowadays that you can record it. Okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? And they say, well, he could talk about my cleavage. And it's like, okay, you be you and I'm going to talk about your cleavage. Let's figure out what you're going to say, right? Or whatever, whatever it is, right? I mean, I I wholeheartedly agree. It, it, It all just kind of comes from that mindset of, Am I getting coaching because I'm burning out and there's something wrong with me? Or am I getting coaching because I just want to elevate to the next level? Our specific sphere tends to kind of veer towards the former where we're getting people when they are burnt out and they are kind of feeling that like negative self-esteem and stuff. So, I mean, I get it. But yet it's important for us to remind our clients, as you said, we're already on the podium. We're in the top 1%. You've made it. You are good. And just because you hit burnout or are having rocky conversations with whoever doesn't mean that you are a failure or that there is weakness. And for me, it's always couched in, you know, what do you really want? What would you run towards if it was available? What's your ideal practice look like? How much of an overlap is there with that in your current situation? Now, you may have a 20% overlap with your ideal practice. We can help you get better. You may have an 80% overlap with your ideal practice, but you want 90. We can help you get better. Uh, simply because having a coach is the best way to hold yourself accountable for taking action. And again, doctors aren't used to having an accountability mechanism. Anything else you want to tell us about crucial conversations? Any other little tip or anything like that? I mean, I think one of the ways to kind of tone down the emotion when it is getting heightened is to start with the facts because facts are objective. Again, using that same scenario that I used before, 
a fact would be we haven't hung out in a long time versus I want to spend time with you. So starting with the facts, generally speaking, hopefully, if we're all in agreeing on what facts are nowadays, generally the facts are going to be objective for both parties. So it is a neutral place to start versus, again, any sort of condemnation. You don't love me anymore. <laughs> Right. We haven't right. been, as opposed to, we haven't been on a date night in eight weeks. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay, great. Well, that's Dr. Penelope Shu, one of our coaches here at thehappymd.com. Come over to the website, thehappymd.com, and smash that coach tab at the top of the page. You see Penny's bios and get yourself a free discovery session. So we've been talking about the book, Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. Specifically adapted to doctors. Mike Drummond here at the home of the Happy MD in beautiful Seattle, Washington. That's it for our latest Physicians on Purpose podcast. See you in the next episode. Thanks, Penny. Thank you. All right. See you. Bye.